2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Amen. One of the things we do as a church is we raise up men and women into ministry. And this morning at our breakfast, we got to hear from uh, Josh Wines, who's a fellow brother and pursuing ministry and seminary right now. And today we get to hear Brother Elvis preach to us, who's also uh, at the beginnings of his ministry. So this is just a wonderful Sunday to end the year with. Get to hear from two brothers that the Lord is raising up and working in this morning. And this, so this is Elvis. For you, those who don't know him, his wisdom and knowledge far exceed his age. So I am honored. I am blessed to be able just to sit under the word preached by this brother this morning. And I think you all will be too. So I'm going to pray for him, and then I'm going to hand it over to you. Lord, Lord, thank you so much, Father that you're, you're raising up Elvis, Lord, to, to tend to the harvest, Lord. And Father, we just, we pray, I pray, Lord, that uh, calm his nerves, give him a clarity of mind, and help him just communicate not his words, not through his intellect or his ability, but all through your spirit. May he preach, Lord, May you preach through him, Lord. Thank you for this time and open up all of our hearts. Open up our minds just to hear your glory, hear your gospel proclaimed. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Good morning, East Shore. How are we doing? All right. So... For those who don't know me, my name is Elvis. I know I've been introduced, but go a little in depth. My name is Elvis. I currently study at Messiah University, and my major is Biblical and Religious Studies. I am pursuing um, ministry, and I just want to thank Pastor Tom, John, and all of you for giving me this opportunity to speak in front of you all today. Um, now, before I begin, I want to get a Few things out of the way here. Yes, my name is Elvis. Um, no, my last name is not Presley. Uh, I cannot sing or dance like Elvis, not even close. Uh, and uh, when I leave today, you cannot, absolutely cannot say, Elvis, Elvis has left the building, okay? <laughs> All right. Now, on a more, on a more serious side, I want to give you all three promises today, promises that I'll make to you all and promises that I'll make to God. Number one, I promise that I will try my best to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. Two, I promise that I won't be abstract, and what I mean by that is I won't be outside. I'll try to be real with you. I try to give you myself, as Paul says. And lastly, and in my opinion, most importantly, uh, a great pastor named Richard Baxter, he says, I will preach to you as a dying man to dying men. And what he's saying is, I'll preach to you as if this was my last sermon, and I'll preach to you as if it was your last sermon. Now, here at East Shore, 
In order to show reverence to God, we like to stand for the reading of the word, and we are in Isaiah chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we have Bibles in the back seats in front of you, and the seat backs in front of you, and that's on page 678 if you're using the blue, back, the blue Bibles in front of you there. We are in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, please stand for the reading of the word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taking away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go out for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Let's pray. Lord, I've heard my name a lot today. My prayer is that it is removed. My prayer is that this is not remembered as Elvis's first sermon, but a day upon which God is glorified. I pray that you help us hear your word, see your word, affirm it in our minds, affirm it in our hearts, that we may go out and proclaim it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So I know we just started in chapter 6, but in order for us to understand chapter 6, we have to turn back a page to chapter 5. So we begin here in chapter 5, and we will begin in verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1, Isaiah begins. He says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. So I'll stop right there and break that down a little bit. This is Isaiah saying, let me sing to my beloved. Beloved here is God. So he's saying, let me sing to God my love song concerning his vineyard. His vineyard is Israel. This is Isaiah singing to God about Israel. Now, he describes this as a love song, but we will soon realize that this is uh, quite the love song. This is a different type of love song, a love song that we probably wouldn't call a love song. <laughs> um, this is a lament. This is a dirge. This is a, a sad song. And as we continue to read here in verse 1, he says, my beloved had a vineyard, so God had a vineyard, Israel, on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. I'm going to stop there again. So we see here, we have to remember that Scripture is written for a people not like us, right? These are written for farmers. So these analogies, these images are written for farmers to understand them. So what Isaiah has given us here, namely God speaking through Isaiah, is giving us a picture 
of what God has done for Israel. So he says, Israel sits on a fertile hill, on good land. He dug it and cleared it of stones. See, when you're a farmer, you have to dig up your stones so that your roots can grow properly, but also so that your equipment doesn't get destroyed as it plows the ground. And he, not only did he just have a fertile hill and clear it of stones, but he chose the best of seed, the choicest vine, or choice vines. And as we continue to read in verse 2, he built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Right? So, as a farmer, you needed to protect your land, not only from animals, but from people, from thieves who would come and take your crop. So, in order to do that, you would build a watchtower so you can watch over your crop. And now, with everything set in place, everything's in line, right? He dug it out, he cleared it, best land, best seed, and he protects it. Well, what would you think, right? It would be a good crop. It'd be a good yield. It'd be a good year. And God expects that. He says, and he looked for it to yield grapes. God is expecting a good harvest. But the text says it yielded wild grapes. Literally in the Hebrew here is sour grapes. Some translations even go so far as to say worthless grapes. Now, how does that happen? How does that work? How is everything set in place perfectly? And yet, you get a bad harvest? Well, God begins to give us an explanation here in verse 3 as we continue to read. We are still in chapter 5, that's verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. This is God, right? This is Almighty God looking down at his people going, look, look what I did. Look what I've done. Everything's perfect. Everything's right. Judge between me and my vineyard. What did I do wrong? What, and we continue to read in verse 4, he says, what more was there to do for my vineyard? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And so God begins to bring his wrath upon his people because they didn't obey him, because they yielded wild grapes. And as we read in verse 5, he says, Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. This is God saying, all the work that I've done, everything that I just did, I'm going to tear it down, destroy it. All the protection, I'm going to take it away. Because you didn't obey me. I will make it a waste, he says in verse 6. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall not grow up, or shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain not upon it. This is God beginning to administer his wrath on his people for a specific reason. But now God gets even more specific. If we turn, well, I guess I don't know about your guys' Bibles, but... Uh, if we go to verse 8, there's a heading there, and it says, Woe to the wicked. If we pay attention to the text here, uh, there's 
six woes as we look at the text. Now, this number six is a interesting number in Hebrew because six is just short of seven. Seven in scripture signifies the fullness of God, the completeness of God, but six is just short of seven. Six is, it signifies something just short of God, something just short of completeness, something that is incomplete. And so we have six incomplete attributes or sins that Israel has done. And these woes begin in verse 8. And it says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. So this is woe number one. Woe number one we're going to call greed. You see, what this is saying, what the text is telling us here is, remember in Israel, land was portioned up. It was divided up. It was given in specific houses, specific families. And then what these rich people would do is they would buy up this land. They would keep buying it up, buying it up until their houses would spread, their families would spread, their land would spread, their wealth would spread. Now, to make this more real for us, we see this today in modern business where companies have monopolies over a certain category of product where they buy up even companies and all these land and to snuff out smaller companies. Now, I won't continue to read all of this woe, but that woe ends in verse 10, and we'll pick back up at verse 11 at the second woe. By the way, sometimes you hear me say second sin or second woe. Those are the same thing. So if you're writing those things down, um, it doesn't matter. But if we start here in verse 11, it says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have a lyre and a harp, tambourine and a flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or seek the works of his hand. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. And I'll stop this woe here. This one is pretty simple. It's drunkenness. Those who rise in the morning and the first thing on their mind is drink. You get an image of a, a party type atmosphere here. Uh, this is very real to us today. Uh, according to a poll or according to a study done by the CDC from 2015 to 2019, more than 140,000 people die or died every year from excessive drinking. That's more than 380 people per day. And yet, here it is in the text, God clearly, clearly rebuking it. But I want us to pay attention there to verse 13 also. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Lack of knowledge. This text isn't saying, for our purposes, this text isn't saying that there is an abundance of wisdom or knowledge out there. But it's that people don't want it. And unfortunately, brothers and sisters, we have to admit there's a lot of it in the church. Where are we willing to defend or able to defend Christian doctrine against the world? 
We must be knowledgeable to do so. Now, this is a really long woe here, and so it goes from 11, uh, verse 11 to verse 17. We won't read all that, but we'll pick right back up at the third woe in verse 18. And it begins, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Now this sin here is a very, I guess the only word you can say is disgusting sin. Uh, if you want to label it there, I labeled it as a mockery of God. So, woe three would be a mockery of God. And the imagery here is that the sins of Israel is so deep, it's so big, it's so heavy and burdensome that they have to use cart ropes to drag their burdens with them, to drag their sins with them. That's how heavy it is. And now this little quote here in verse 19, where it says, let them be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. What this is telling us in modern language is pretty much, if God's going to do something about it, let him do it. This is what that quote is saying. If God is all controlling and he wants to do something about it, let him do it and be quick about it. We see this today, don't we? There's a group of men who dress up as nuns and mock Jesus on the cross. A disgusting sin, a mockery of Christ. And lest we think that this group of people was condemned publicly by the world, and they weren't. In fact, they were invited to a Dodgers game. That's the professional baseball team. They were invited to perform a show at their game where they danced on a cross. This is our world. But it was Israel's too. And as we continue to read down in the verse 20, into our fourth woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This one again is self-evident, where we replace that which God has established as good with what we think is good, namely, what is evil. And when I mean we, I mean our nation, not us specifically. We see this in the moral corruption of our modern society. Now, I don't mean to pick on a particular group of people because there's a, a lot out there. But one statistic that I found from a Gallup poll from 2012 to 2021 showed a double a doubling of the LGBTQ community, and like I said, I'm not trying to pick on them, but this is a reality, um, doubled from 3.5% to 7.1%. We might say, well, that's not significant. That's significant. In a decade for something to double so radically. And as we go further down into verse 21, into woe number five. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. See, this verse here is telling us 
These people were prideful, self-righteous. You see, in, in the Bible, the biblical revelation is that wisdom comes from God and God alone. But yet here in the text, wisdom is seen as coming from humans. They're wise in their own eyes, the text says. To use some fancy words, this is what we would call autonomy, where humans uh, usurp their self or uh, attempt to push themselves into God's seat, onto his throne, where they make themselves in charge. Another word for this is humanism where the measure of standard is humans. Humans are what we guide everything by. But that's not the biblical revelation, is it? No, it's that everything is guided by God. And God is our standard. There used to be an old saying during the medieval age where uh, theology was called the queen of the sciences and philosophy was her handmaiden, was the old quote. And we see that that's, that's gone. Theology isn't science anymore. Ridiculous to call theology scientific. But yet, here we are. As we go further down, we get to our last woe, woe number six, which begins in verse 22. It says, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, and deprive the innocent of his right. Now, this may seem like a redundancy to the previous uh, woe where he talked about drunkenness. Though this is talking about drunkenness, it's talking about a particular kind of drunkenness. So if we pay attention here, we get adjectives to describe it. So he says, who are heroes at drinking? Valiant men and mixing strong drinks. So these adjectives, hero and valiant, are... Um, usually in Hebrew used for heroes, or I'm sorry, leaders. So words like mighty, heroic, things like that are used for leadership. This is saying you have drunken leadership. I don't think I need to go too far to make this real for us today. And whether, whatever side you fall on, left or right, Democrat or Republican, doesn't matter. It's not far to say that all of our leadership is currently failing us. But yet, God just simplifies it all for us, as he always does. Well, not always. But he boils it all down. And we find this in verse 24. Now, I'm not going to read this entire verse, but I'm going to read the very last, ver- uh, the very last lines of it. For it says, For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. God boils it all down and says, all these sins, we smash them into one, and they all can be labeled by this one thing, rejecting my word. Not having a concern for the law of God. So, As we continue to read, we finally get to chapter 6, right? 
So in chapter 6, verse 1, we're going to begin to read again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and a train of his robe filled the temple. You know, Isaiah, what are we talking about here? We just went from all these sins, all this misery, all this pain, all this sorrow, and now here's God on the throne lifted up. What's going on? But think about it. What would you ask yourself? You see all these things in a society. What would you ask yourself? Where's God? Doesn't he care? Isn't he all controlling? Doesn't, isn't he on the throne? Where's he at right now? Well, Isaiah anticipates that and answers the question for us clearly. He says, the Lord is sitting upon a throne. So yes, our world is in misery. Cultural lawlessness reigns, but God is on the throne. And he is over it all. He controls it all. So we need not worry. But also, he says, he's high and lifted up. He's above it all. He's holy. He's separate. He's, um, he's above all the pain and misery. And it also says, and I love this verse here, the train of his robe filled the temple. I love this verse because the imagery here is that a robe, the train of his robe behind him, fills the temple. The text is telling us there's not a place anywhere in the world where God's robe isn't. It fills the temple. God is everywhere at all times completely. So Isaiah reminds us, and he gives us hope. He gives us encouragement. And as we continue to read in verse 2, he says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I'm going to stop right there. This is one of the most important scriptures in all of the Bible. If there was ever a verse that you wanted to remember, this is the one. If you ever need an answer to a question, this is your answer. If you ever want to, you know, be witty and like spit off a verse real quick, Isaiah 6.3. This is what, this is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. You see, Martin Luther, the uh, famous reformer, said that sola fide, which means faith alone, is the doctrine upon which the world stands. I'm sorry, the church stands. But what I'm saying today is that this verse here is the doctrine upon which the world stands. Everything falls and is upheld by this one verse, that God is holy. Now, if we look at the text here, holy is raised to the third superlative. Superlative is just a fancy word for emphasis. In Hebrew, when you raise something up, they didn't use exclamation marks like we do. They use repetition. So when you repeat something over and over and over again, you're emphasizing it. So we see this in Song of Songs, where something is repeated twice. We see this in Vanity of Vanities, where something is repeated twice. But never in the Old Testament, never, 
is an attribute of God raised to the third superlative other than this. He's not love, love, love. He's not wrath, wrath, wrath. He's not justice, 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 or compassion, compassion, compassion. He's holy, holy, holy. And that's what we should focus on because that's what Scripture emphasizes. And as we continue to read down into verse 4, it says, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Remember, we just read off six woes. Yet this is Isaiah saying, woe is me. A woe is a, a woe can be a curse. A woe can be, uh, it's nothing good, essentially, is the basic definition of a woe. It's everything bad, almost. But yet this is Isaiah. When he gazes upon the holiness of God, he says, woe is me. God is so holy, he pronounces a curse against himself. And he continues, he says, I am lost. I like the King James Version here where it says, I am undone. The imagery here is that I'm unraveling. I'm falling apart at the seams when I gaze upon the holiness of God. But I want us to pay attention here. He says, for I am a man of unclean lips. This is Isaiah saying, he's a man of unclean lips. He is arguably one of the most righteous people in Israel at this moment. And he's saying, my lips are unclean. What does that tell us? That shows us how small we are when we look upon God. You know, when you clean something and everything around it is really dirty, you really see how dirty it is, don't you? That's how it is when we look at God. We see how perfect he is and reflect upon ourselves and all we can see is imperfection. The magisterial reformer, John Calvin, that's a fancy word, I thought I'd use that. John Calvin here, he says, Hence the dread and amazement with which, as Scripture uniformly relates, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. This is essentially exactly what I was just saying. They say when we look upon God, when we see how good and perfect he is, we realize how insignificant we are. And he doesn't mean insignificant in a way that we're just worthless or we mean nothing and we have no importance. No. He means insignificance in the sense that God is so significant that it would be appropriate for us to be insignificant. But why did I take all this time to get to this verse? Right? I mean... Some of you are probably sitting there saying, Elvis, we know. We see it. We live it. We work in it. We teach in it. We know the world's all messed up. Well, I want us to know our purpose 
in this messed up world. And God answers that purpose for us. In verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to Isaiah, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taking away, taken away and your sin atoned for. Now this is what I want you to pay attention to here, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah answers, Here I am. Send me. Right? So in the, in the midst of this cultural lawlessness, of a world lost, God chooses to come to us, his people, and say, I need someone. All of you, I want you all. I'm calling you. I need a people to go out for me. I need somebody to go out and do my work. But now, we know that God's calling, but what does this call look like, right? If we paid attention to verse, uh, verses 4 and 5 there, I'm sorry, verse 6, a seraphim flew to Isaiah with a burning coal. This coal was so hot that when the seraphim pulled it off the altar, he used tongs, the text says. And where does he put it? He puts it on Isaiah's lips. I'm sure that hurt. But you see, the text is telling us here, but why the lips, right? The lips are personal. We kiss with our lips. It's a personal portion of our body. It's a portion that we use to glorify God. But it's also the portion that James tells us we use to curse others. So the seraphim knows that in order for Isaiah to answer this call, the coal must purify his lips. Isaiah must be purified. The coal must sear his sin so that he can be atoned for and forgiven. But now I want to just quickly um, urge you all that this is not a light call. This is a call for the mature. This is a costly call. This is a heavy call. And if you're ready for the call, God bless. But if you're not, don't feel, don't feel bad. In fact, if you ask me, I'd say the smarter option would be to wait to answer this call and mature yourself. But if you think you're not ready for this call, I would implore you to then Engulf yourself in scriptures, to drown yourself in the word of God so that you may be mature and ready to glorify God in this manner. So we have a fallen world where God calls us, and we know we must be purified to answer this call. But in this last section here, I want us all to know that it's not on us. It's not on us to do it all. Actually, it's 
all on God. Scripture tells us that Jesus did it all. He died on a cross. He did the work on the cross. And the text also says the same thing. This is a beautiful, beautiful the way the text has worked here. As we continue along, we get down to verse 13, towards the very, very end of chapter 6. And it says, though a tenth remain in it, I will, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. You see, what the text is telling us here is that in the Mediterranean, these, this terebinth and an oak are very interesting trees. They have the capacity that if they're cut down, they have the capacity, if their stump remains, to regrow to shoot off these shoots, and they can flourish as new trees. And so we, we have hope, is what the text is telling us. We have hope that though it will be burned again, it will be felled again. The stump remains. God's remnant will always remain, and we can always have hope that God will remain. And that was so interesting here, and I credit this to Pastor Tom for pointing this out. If we go over to Isaiah chapter 3, or I'm sorry, chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, it says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, verse 2 is what I want us to focus on. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. This is Isaiah's famous messianic prophecy. This is where we get one of the most complete pictures of Jesus' life and death. And yet Jesus is described as a young plant. Remember what we just read. A stump that remains. Jesus is the stump. He's the plant that grows. He is our hope. And we can take comfort in knowing that he has finished it. He has done the work so yes, our world is messed up. Our country is messed up. In dire need of help. Urgent need. In the midst of all of it, he calls us. Us. Unworthy of such a call. Not fit for such a call. But what does he do? He makes us fit for it. How does he do it? He purifies us. He applies the coal to our lips. Now, this is not an easy process. This is a painful one. It hurts to have a burning coal on your lips. Trust me. I don't know for sure, but I'm sure it hurts. So once we accept this call and we're purified, we can take hope whether we accept the call or not. We can take hope. That no matter what, God is on the throne. Any his high and lifted up. 
and a train of his robe does indeed fill the temple. And Jesus is the stump that remains, and God will always have his remnant. Because nothing is more powerful than God's love. And nothing is more important than God's holiness. And he will ensure he gets it. So let us today always remember to have hope. 